0: You learn more and more, you learn that the one who's coming to, to fulfill these prophecies would be of the line of David. He's going to be a king. His kingdom's going to have no end. And then you move about the coming Christ, and the, the last part of your Old Testament is full of the prophetic books, and the prophets have a great deal to say about this coming Christ. And Isaiah, more than any other prophet, says the most. He has the most specific details and he has the most information about this one who would come, the Christ, who we know as Jesus. Isaiah, the early chapters up to about chapter 35, like many of the prophets, the focus of his message is a message of judgment. The judgment of a just god coming upon his people in the world. God is bringing universal judgment, Isaiah relates. But yet in the message of the judgment of God coming upon people for their sins, because of their rejection of God's word, there are these bright spots of hope. And that's what we have tonight. Isaiah chapter 9 verses 1 through 7 is one of these bright spots in in essentially what is an ocean of the revelation of God's wrath what God is going to do for his people what God is going to do for the nations Isaiah chapter 9 it's really a hopeful message Isaiah chapter 9 here beginning in verse 1 a text written by Isaiah about 600 years before the birth of Jesus Christ Isaiah chapter 9 beginning in verse 1 the scripture says but there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish in the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea the land beyond the Jordan Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt on the land of deep darkness, on them is light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff, for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor, You have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The changes the sun brings is what we begin to focus on on verses 1 through 5. That the sun comes into a place of darkness and distress. The sun is going to change this place of darkness and distress. Again, keep in mind the context of Isaiah, this message of judgment, but in contrast to the outpouring wrath of God upon the nations, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. You remember when essentially Israel israel's kingdom divided what a sad history of division and infighting you, you essentially have Saul and David and Solomon with the United Kingdom and then under Rehoboam Solomon's son the kingdom splits and then you have the northern kingdom my math is terrible but I believe it's 10 tribes in the southern kingdom Judah and Benjamin two tribes and essentially the northern kingdom goes into exile destroyed by Assyria and they're done historically done the land of Naphtali would be included in that, the land of Zebulun brought into contempt by God because of their sins over but in the latter time so where God has historically judged them in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea the land beyond the Jordan-Galilee of the nations So. In the latter time, well, you see this language here, this is the end times. This is the last days. That's what this language refers to. You can find in Hebrews chapter one, verses one and two, that the last days is now. The last days is the time of Jesus and all the time following the coming of Jesus Christ. We are living in the last days, according to biblical terminology. God has done something in the last days with His Son. And in this text, notice it, this land that was forsaken and judged in the last days, he is made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And, and you read Matthew, one of the ways Matthew introduces Jesus is he comes from the land of Galilee. Matthew emphasizes this point. Jesus' ministry takes place in Galilee. Read Matthew chapter 3. Read Matthew chapter 4. He comes from Galilee. That's where his beginnings on this earth, his ministry begins, and most of it takes place. In Galilee, the the land of the Gentiles, or the land of the the Galilee of the nations, verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelled in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Matthew quotes this text. They had been walking in darkness, now they've seen a great light. Jesus is the light. A light brings illumination. That which was previously not known is now made clear. You find it in the teaching of Jesus about who he is and what he's doing. These are things that were previously unknown but are known. This light is shining among people who are walking in darkness. He brings illumination to them. Verse 3, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. He brings joy. Again, like we, you study the, the, the texts about the birth of Jesus, one of the, the themes that you find over and over again is His coming, His birth is attended with joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest and they are glad when they divide the spoil. That's the fact that His coming brings this joy and it's a place again of darkness and distress under the judgment of God. This child this son is gonna bring that kind of joy look what he does in verse 4 for the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian look, look at this language his burden his oppressor this son this child comes and he removes the yoke He takes the staff off the, sh- off the shoulder he Removes the rod of the oppressor. It's broken as on the day of Midian. Notice that's a comparison. This is poetic language, by the way. That's why some of this, you've got to be careful how far you push this language. It is poetry, it's poetry writing about the glory of Jesus Christ, this coming one. But you notice you pick up on some ideas you find in the New Testament burden, burden, a yoke a staff for the shoulder, or the rod of the oppressor. These are broken. But what, is, what do we learn is the great burden that Jesus deals with on behalf of his people in the New Testament. It's the burden of sin. It's the burden of sin. In Romans 6, we're described as slaves to sin. Slaves to sin, but what does Jesus do? This, this is an imagery here of captivity and enslavement the rod of the oppressor, the staff of the shoulder. This is a taskmaster. This is one of the things the Jews failed to understand about the glory of Jesus Christ was the reality of his death for sin, which Isaiah incidentally makes clear. In Isaiah 53, he bears our guilt, our transgressions. He carries them away. This idea of burden, this idea of the rod of the oppressor, this idea of captivity we learn what we're captive to and what Jesus deals with is our sin in the New Testament I think that's what he's talking about here and not only that verse 5 for the boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire this reality of war and death is a horrible thing this idea of garments being rolled in blood is essentially soldiers who are saturated in blood a horrible reality that characterizes this world, that is going to change that is going to change with this coming one, that is an aspect of distress that this world suffers in anguish under and it's going to change verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given where the ravages of sin are going to be undone, Matthew 121, you will call his name Jesus and he will save his people from their sins. From the very beginning, Matthew introduces and explains Jesus as the Lord who would come as a Davidic king to deal with the sins of his people. This it's the idea found all throughout Isaiah. One of those sins being the reality of death and conquering and worldly war that is going to change because of this child and this son ultimately one day those things will be no more Isaiah chapter 2 talks about the warriors beating their swords into plowshares. They're not going to need those swords anymore it's all because of the coming of this one. So that's the context the sun comes into. The sun comes into a context of darkness and distress but now we see in verses 6 and 7 some specifics about the sun. We see the glory of the sun. Look at it. For to us a child is born. That's, that's how all these things are going to come about. The, the, the light shining in a dark place. That which was under contempt now being made glorious. Those who are dwelling in deep darkness seeing a great light. The, multi, the multiplying of joy in the nation. The breaking of the yoke and the rod of the oppressor. The ending of battle tumult. For to us a child is born. What an amazing way God deals with these horrible problems in the world. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. By the way, the us there is the people of God. That's why when you read Isaiah, you find a lot of us, we, our language. Really helpful to read those in context. It's talking about the people of God. He's come for us. And notice the emphasis here. He's a child. He is a person. He is a person. This emphasizes his humanity. He is one of us. He's one of us. He's a man. He's a son. You understand God has a son. This is one of the things that you can engage if you have Jewish friends who care about the Bible. This is one of their big sticking points of rejecting Christianity is they don't believe God has a son. Well, look at this text. How about Psalm 2? Look at Psalm 2, verses 6 to 8. Psalm 2, verses 6 to 8, where we see God speaking in this section. Actually, it starts in verse 7, I'm sorry, or 6. (laughs) This is God's plan for for the nations that that reject him. What's God going to do about them? As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Wow, that sounds just like John's gospel. Well, John got those ideas from somewhere. Obviously inspired by the Holy Spirit, but based on the Old Testament. You're my son. The Lord said to me, the Lord has a son. Verse 8, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Yes, God has a son. We read about him here in Isaiah. Notice what it says, the government shall be upon his shoulder. The idea of the government there, the word government is the word dominion in the Old Testament. Essentially the idea of an area that is ruled is the best way to describe it. It's a dominion. The dominion is upon his shoulder, meaning all the rule belongs to him. He's holding it up. I mean, one of the most frustrating things about Living in a world where we have such good access to news, again, it's kind of like technology. There's joys and then there's dangers. Is, isn't government so frustrating? I mean, my goodness, isn't it so frustrating to watch? If you look at politics and news and government, isn't it utterly frustrating? And it always has been. And I think it always will be. It's not like there's some paradigm government in history that you look to and be like oh my goodness there's a perfect government no it's always been full of people who are sinners who are fighting with each other in general and it's so frustrating but there's coming a dominion that will be on his shoulders isn't that something good to look forward to you just take our current political climate infighting division polarization and and these are the people Who have the reins about. I have a friend who works in the government. I I don't know if I should share this. I guess I I will. I'm just trying to, I'm trying to dull my language down because it wouldn't be appropriate for me to say it the way he said it. And and he said, one of the things that shocked him is how dumb some of the people are in government. And he means like elected officials. And he was just like, it's just amazing in working with some of these people how D-U-M-B they are. I just don't know any other way to say it. But praise God, this child and this son, the government is going to be on his shoulder. And this is one of our great hopes, is his coming kingdom and rule that will be perfect. This This is a testament to the failure of human governments. But his rule, his dominion, will be perfect. Praise God. Notice what his name is called, and the idea of the name is the idea of his character and his being. First of all, he's called Wonderful Counselor. There's a good leader, a Wonderful Counselor. You have an, essentially adjectives and verbs here. He, he's wonderful, and he's a counselor. A counselor is one who gives another advice. And We know not all counselors are wise. We don't walk in the counsel of the wicked, but Jesus... This son, this child is a wonderful counselor. He, he speaks and listening to his voice knew life the dead receive. Amazing. He's a wonderful counselor. He brings us wonderful counsel. He does it through his word as we know. You can, you can be counseled by Jesus. Opening the Bible. Reading what he says. You're counseled by the wonderful counselor. His words perfectly. Recorded in scripture, inspired by God. You receive the counsel of God. Even, even his enemies, the officers of the Pharisees in John 7, said, No one ever spoke like this man. Essentially, in John 7, they don't know what to do with Jesus. Some people want to arrest him, some people want to exile him, some people want to kill him. The Pharisees send their officers, they come back. They've done nothing, essentially, but just stand in awe. No one ever spoke like this man. Even his enemies recognize that. He is a wonderful counselor. More than that, and astoundingly, with clarity, he is mighty God. This child, this son, is mighty God. Eo Gabor. Eo being the, the name of God, the word that refers to God in the Old Testament. He is mighty God. This is why all the cults who have a different view of Jesus reject this text or change it. Because here the prophet clearly says this child, this son, obviously who he's talking about is Jesus. He is, his name will be called Mighty God. You saw it earlier in Isaiah 7.14, also quoted in Matthew. The virgin will conceive. She will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's who he is. You think about the Almighty That's who this child is. He is the Almighty. Come to earth. John 1.1 In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. God took on flesh. The mighty God of the Old Testament took on flesh. He is mighty God. He is everlasting Father. Father. This one's a little more challenging, and what you've got to do when you study the Trinity and the the reality of the person of God is look at all of Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture and helps us to understand Scripture. Some people interpret this little phrase as Father of Eternity, meaning he is the one who has created essentially all things. There's a reason why none of the translations translate it that way. Everlasting Father, now do you, do, you, do, you, do you see the challenge of calling the Son and the, the, the Child Everlasting Father? Well, Because Jesus is not the Father. Jesus is not the Father. So why is he called Everlasting Father? Well, let's go to John's Gospel and, and let me do my best to try to explain this. John's Gospel. We'll start in chapter 10. I've got several passages to read for you here. Whenever you venture into discussions about the deity and the humanity of Christ, it's helpful not to go beyond what is written. People get into trouble when they do that. Uh, The scripture clearly teaches some things, and as in many matters, there are other aspects to the reality of God that are left unexplained, so there's always going to be questions about the incarnation of Christ, the deity of Christ, the person of Christ. One thing's for sure is Isaiah exalts his person and glorifies him. He is everlasting Father. John 10, John contains some of the most in depth explanations from Jesus about his person. John 10, verses 30 to 33. John 10, verses 30 to 33. I and the Father are one. So Jesus, in a sense, speaks of himself and the Father as one. Verse 31. Now how do the, look at how the Jews understand him. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work, that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. So, do you see how the Jews interpret Jesus? How they understand Jesus saying, I and the Father are one? They understand it as a claim of deity. They don't understand it as he's specifically saying he's the Father, they recognize he's claiming to be God. It's a claim of deity. Look at chapter 14. That, that's, what I think Jesus, that's what I think Isaiah means when he says this child, this son is everlasting father. It's, it's like the statement he is mighty God. It's a statement of his divinity. That's who the father is. Look at John 14 verses 9 and 10. More explanation to come. John 14 verses 9 and 10. Jesus said to him have I been with you so long that you still do not know me? Philip, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. Now look what he says in chapter 14 verse 9 whoever has seen me has seen the father and then look what he goes on to how he explains that in verse 10 do you not believe that i am in the father and the father is in me so uh, there's a sense in which if you've seen me you've seen the father but also there's a sense of distinction I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. That's what he means by if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. It means the Father's in me. He proves to be in me by the works that I do because I'm doing works only he can do. And that's why you should believe. Look at John 17. It's what we call the high priestly prayer of Jesus where Jesus is is praying to the Father on behalf of his followers. Now, this becomes very important because this text, like so many other, but this one clearly highlights the distinction that exists between Jesus the Son and the Father. So there is distinction, but there is unity. Now, notice what it says, John 17, 11. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Now notice, he's talking to the Father, there's distinction, but then there's this language of being one. This language of being one. Look at verses 21 to 23 of John 17. Clear distinction, but statements of unity. Eternally separate and distinct, but yet... One God. John 17, 21. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now look what he's praying here for his people, that they may all be one. It doesn't mean there's not going to be distinction among them. What does the idea of them being one mean? It means unity. It means there's unity among them, just like there's unity among the Father and the Son. So much unity among the Father and Son that the Old Testament, Isaiah, says he is everlasting Father. Doesn't contradict the fact that there is distinction among Jesus the Son and God the Father. It is a claim of divinity. It is a claim of divinity. He is divine. There is perfect unity. John chapter 5, one more. It's Sunday night. Let's get in depth. John chapter 5, beginning in verse 16. As you make Muslim friends, one of the interesting things about Muslims is typically they're willing to talk about faith. Faith. This is a text that you can take Muslim friends to, to show them the identity of Jesus and to show them how insufficient their definition and understanding of Jesus is. They believe Jesus to just be a prophet and the son of Mary. They do not believe him to be God of very God, one with the Father, the Father in him and he in the Father. John chapter 5, Jesus deals with this issue. Uh, Essentially, there's been a healing on a Sabbath, and this, this Sabbath controversy comes up. And look at what Jesus says in John 5, 16. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. Now, one thing here he's doing is he's pulling in and relying on some Jewish theology of the fact that the Father still works on the Sabbath. Understanding the sovereignty of God, you have to believe that God is still upholding all things by the word of his power, even on the Sabbath. God is at work on the Sabbath, and here the Son is essentially saying, as the Father is working, I'm working. Meaning he's higher than the Sabbath law. The Sabbath requirement does not apply to him. Why? Because he's God. Because he's God. And that's exactly how the Jews understand it. Look at it. In the next verse. John 5 and 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath. But he was even calling God his own father. Making himself equal to with God it's equality with God it's divinity it's a claim of divinity that is the issue now look what Jesus goes on to say in verse 19 this really continues to the whole chapter we're just gonna go to, to verse 24 verse 19 so Jesus said to them truly truly I say to you the Son can do nothing of his own accord and that's really not a good translation there's not a good way to translate this into into English, Essentially, the son is saying, the son can do nothing of himself, in and of himself. There's such unity between the father and son. The son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing, for whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. So notice the distinction. There's the father and there's the son, but there's such incredible unity, the son does not do anything of his own or apart from the father? verse 20 for the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel for as the father raises the dead he gives them life and gives them life so also the son gives life to whom he will. There's one being that can raise the dead everybody knows the answer to that question It's God. And look at what the Father gives the Son. The Son gives life. He's not just a teacher. He's not just a prophet. He's not just the Son of Mary. He gives life in the way God gives life. And notice his sovereignty. He dispenses it to whom he will. This is a discretion that only God can exercise it's not within the realm or capability of a mere man. verse 22. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. This is what you can all through here you can interact with Muslims. But Muslims recognize and clearly believe there's one judge and that's God. And look at what the Son here is teaching. The Son is teaching, notice it. All judgment is given to the Son. Notice that given, it's given over by by the Father to the Son. Purpose, verse 23, that all may honor the Son. There's something you only do for divine beings, pay homage to them in this way. Just just as they honor the Father. Just as God the Father is honored, the Son is to be honored. Co-equal. And this is why the Muslim view of God and the Mormon view of Jesus and the Mormon, the Jehovah's Witness view of Jesus are all terribly ins, insufficient and insignificant. As the Father is honored, so the Son is to be honored. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. There's a good message for the Jews. Just because you believe in the same God, you don't honor the Son, you don't honor him. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. One more example of this fact that there's unity and distinction. There's unity in purpose. There's unity in being. All the being that makes the Father God, the Son also is God. But there's distinction in person. There's a Father and a Son and a Holy Spirit, there's a distinction in person, and there's a distinction in role. One of the the things you can see in the New Testament is texts, scriptures in the Old Testament that refer to the God of the Old Testament, the Almighty, are applied to Jesus in the New Testament. There's many of these. In fact, there is a mountain of evidence in your New Testament that Jesus is divine. I'm just going to give you one example of this. Joel 2.32 Joel 2.32, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, who's the Lord in that text? And by the way, that's an all-caps Lord. It's the God of the Old Testament. Whoever will call upon the, the name or of the God of the Old Testament will be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. By the way, just an interesting fact about that point, those who call on the name of the Lord are those the Lord calls. Do you see that in that text? Whenever you find quotations of the Old Testament and the New, it's helpful to study the whole context of them. All right, so you're familiar probably with the New Testament quotation of this in in Romans 10.13 which incidentally Romans 10.13 is about this idea of the message of Jesus going to all people and look at how this scripture is used in Romans 10.13 for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You're probably familiar with that one. Who is the Lord in that verse? Who are we talking about in Romans 10? Jesus. The Joel passage that's being quoted refers to the God of the Old Testament. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. L-O-R-D, all in caps. Romans 10, Paul, a pretty smart Jew, appropriates it. And the Lord he's talking about is Jesus. You will find that all throughout the New Testament. These Old Testament passages referring to the God of the Old Testament... New Testament authors essentially insert this is talking about Jesus. He is, he is everlasting Father. He shares the attribute with God that only God has of being everlasting. There's only one being who's everlasting and eternal and that's Jesus who is divine. <clears throat> it's the glory of the Son. Isaiah 9, 6, he shall be called Prince of Peace. Prince is another royal title associated with generally the sons of kings, isn't it? That's who a prince is, generally the son of a king. The idea of prince in the Old Testament is one who rules, one who is the inheritor of the power. Here's the inheritor of the power, but what's he going to do with it? Peace. He's the prince who brings peace. Which, by the way, all through world history, this is not typically what princes do with their power and their authority. This son, this child, is different. He is glorious, and we see now the glory of his kingdom. So we see his context that the son comes into a context of darkness and distress. We see the glory of the son in his name and his character. We now see the glory of the son's kingdom. In verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Look at it. It's the increase of his government. His government here is, a, again, mentioned, his dominion. The increase of it, I think, speaks to its size, its expanse. Its expanse. The, you think of the parables of the kingdom, the comparisons, the analogies of the kingdom in the New Testament. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. It starts out really tiny but it grows to be this massive bush and all kinds of birds come and find a home in that massive bush that just started out so small it's an, it's an increasing government by the way, whenever the Old Testament was translated into Greek the word they used here for increase is the word megale large megos, huge that's what his government is like and not only, not only is it powerful it's peaceful it's it's the increase the size of his government and of his peace not only is it powerful and peaceful it's everlasting there will be no end to it this is one of the reasons it's so different and so unlike other worldly governments and dominions <laughs> world governments come and go they're like dust in the scales it's what the nations are like they're like a drop in a bucket don't be too impressed by these big geographical powers they're a drop in the bucket. His kingdom's eternal. Not only that, it's Davidic on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it. It's David's kingdom he rules, an eternal kingdom now under his, the sun. He's going to establish this kingdom and he's going to uphold it. And how's he gonna do it? With justice and righteousness. This is the glory of the son's kingdom. It's justice and righteousness. The, the word justice there is the common word for judgment. It could be the context here. It's gonna be brought in through the judgment of God, but it's also righteous. Earthly kingdoms are neither just nor righteous. They're all corrupt because they're controlled and led by corrupt people. Not, the, not this kingdom though. See how glorious this kingdom is? the kingdom of righteousness and justice from this time forth and forevermore again another emphasis on its eternality this is where our hope is our hope is in this kingdom our hope is in this king our hope is in this child our hope is in this son look how it's going to come about at the end of verse 7 what could bring this about through a child the zeal of the lord of hosts will accomplish it the zeal of the how does a virgin conceive the zeal of the Lord of hosts the plan and divine working of God that's how it takes place not through political maneuvering not through political plotting now this child this king comes to this dominion through the zeal of God it's the work of God that brings it about two last points of application number one marvel at the plan of God it's one of the things you find in especially in Luke's gospel it's in all the gospels but Luke likes to emphasize the marveling at what takes place with the birth of Jesus, right? Everybody's marveling, they're all wondering. There's amazement everywhere at what takes place. You should marvel at the plan of God to bring this about through a child, through his son. and You marvel at the plan of God that this darkness and this distress will be brought to peace. Not only do you marvel at the plan of God, you marvel at the person of Jesus. Where his person is described in detail here as mighty God, an everlasting father. He's prince of peace. He's a wonderful counselor. Nobody else in scripture is described this way. Nobody else in history is described this way. Moses isn't described as mighty God. David isn't described as a wonderful counselor. The things Jesus says, there's so many proofs of his divinity. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Moses doesn't say that, or anything close to that. He's so profoundly different in the revelation of who he is and what he'd be like and what he does. You should marvel at the person of Jesus. This is why, especially this season, the thoughts of people about Jesus are far too small far too minimal. He is glorious in the extreme in his clear revelation of his humanity, a child, but in his majesty, mighty God. There's a lot of gravity and weightiness here. Well, as I've done tonight, Christians throughout history Have groped for language to describe the gravity of Jesus' divinity and humanity, both of which are found in this text. And praise God, I've got some help. A little help from my friends from the early centuries of the church. You know, we're not alone. We're standing on the shoulders of giants. We're not the first people to read the Bible. We're not the first people to think about the deity of Christ or to see it in Scripture. And this is why you have ancient confessions of faith, where brilliant men spent months trying to explain with as clear a language as possible what the Bible teaches about Jesus being a child, a a person, seed of the woman, and Jesus being divine. Let me give you a sampling of some of this tonight. First of all, the Nicene Creed. 381. This is what it says about Jesus. This is a Trinitarian creed and it talks about the Father, Son, and Spirit, what we believe about them. But listen to what it says about the Son. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father, through him all things. Were made. Then Athanasius, this great champion for the deity and humanity of Christ, this this great champion for the Trinity. This is the Athanasian Creed. Don't have a date on this one because it's unknown. Third or fourth century. A selection from the Athanasian Creed. We worship one God in Trinity, and Trinity in unity. Neither confounding the persons nor dividing the essence. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Ghost. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost is all one. The glory eternal, the majesty co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Ghost. And that's a long creed. (laughs) And it goes on and on about the similarities of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Finally, the Chalcedonian Creed. This is a creed that deals with the humanity of Jesus Christ, the incarnation. That Jesus is fully God, he's fully man, and they're not divided. It's not like, well, for a while he's God and then he becomes man and then he goes back to being God again. No, he's both. And listen to the the depth of explanation here. Again, one of the things that's interesting to me about this is, these are things Christians... Have been reading and publicly confessing and considering for literally over a thousand years. That we're seeing the same things from the Bible as Christians living in the 300s. Listen to how the Chalcedonian Creed puts it. Praise God for Chalcedon. Therefore, following the Holy Fathers, who all with one accord teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son our Lord Jesus Christ at once completing Godhead and completing manhood truly God and truly man consisting also of a reasonable soul and body of one substance with the Father as regards his Godhead and at the same time of one substance with us as regards his manhood like us in all respects apart from sin as regards his Godhead begotten of the Father before the ages but yet as regards his manhood, begotten. For us men and for our salvation of Mary the Virgin, the God-bearer, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, the distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved And coming together to form one person and substance, I'm sorry, one person and subsistence, not as parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God, the Word, Lord Jesus Christ, even as the prophets from earliest times spoke of him, and our Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us, and the creed of the fathers is handed down to us. Let's pray together. God, I just pray that we would recognize your majesty and glory and weightiness revealed in your word, your good work, God, to come in the latter days, sending your son to bring light to those who are dwelling in darkness, joy, freedom from oppression and captivity to sin, and the end of wars as we know them. The one who is Prince of Peace and mighty God, everlasting Father, wonderful Counselor, whose dominion has no end. It's eternal. It's righteous. It's just. The Davidic King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In Him, all the promises of God find their yes. There's none like Him. Help us to marvel God at the revelation of your work, Lord, first of all, the zeal of the Lord of hosts accomplishes this. Marvel at your work that you sent him in the form of a servant, a child, your son. And to marvel at who he is and what he did and what he said. God, we'd recognize that there's no man who speaks like this. He is God of very God. and Help us to worship him rightly. Help us to be wise like Thomas the Confessor and say my Lord and my God, and help us to worship him for he's worthy. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So friends, let's stand and do that. Worship him. He comes to die on the cross for sins, to be raised from the dead, to give the good news and good hope that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He saves his people from their sins. You should call on his name. Let's sing and recognize his majesty and glory and honor him.